Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. How are we doing today? All right. Christmas Eve is coming, everybody. We have a service at 3, we have a service at 5, and we have a service at 11 p.m. And I'm reminded of that because we came up with that three years ago before I had a child. And now, every year, I'm like, do we really need to do it, though? I mean, 11 is a lot later than it used to be for me, but it's really cool, and it's a really good service, and I'm really looking forward to it. But here's one thing I know is that it always seems like Christmas Eve is forever away, but it will be here before you know it. And the older I get, one thing seems to be truer and truer and truer. Time moves faster and faster and faster. I was having conversations before this service started, and we just all talked about how it seems like Christmas is already here. And when you're a kid... The Christmas season seems to last forever. The magic of it. I'm not talking about the Hobby Lobby started in July, fake Christmas season. I'm talking about the real thing that starts after Thanksgiving. It seems like when I was a kid, the magic of Christmas lasted way longer than it does now. And it just flies right by. It reminds me of something that my neighbor Bob said to me. I meet him oftentimes outside. We have a porch swing and I'll swing my kid and Bob's outside smoking cigars. And, and I forget for a little while about the danger of secondhand smoke, you know? Um, and, and he said at one point to me a couple months ago, he said, you know, it feels like I don't have as long as I used to. And he said, you probably have 11 months because you're still kind of young. I have eight months in a year now. Just speaking to how quickly time seemingly moves the older you get. How quickly the Christmas season moves. It flies right by before you know it. It'll be here in 2020s on the way. But beyond that, the, the chaos of Christmas isn't just because time moves faster. I think there's more stuff around Christmas now. There's more things to do. There's more parties. There's more dances. There's more work things. There's more, if you have small kids, all the things. And if you want to get me and Sarah down for a Christmas party, we're scheduling two to three years out at this point, you know, just to find a day that we can all get together and have a free night. It seems like Christmas is borderline chaotic. And what that means is, in the season that's supposed to be about family and friends and love and giving and thankfulness, all those things, it seems like sometimes, because of how quick it is and how fast time goes, that I'm just trying to survive it instead of thriving it, you know? And here's why I bring that up, is because... We tell these stories at Christmas every year. You're not going to hear a story today that if you've been in church for longer than two or three, you haven't heard. You're not going to hear something new about the Bible that you probably haven't already seen before or been taught to before around Christmas. The problem is we're so busy around the Christmas season and Christmas time that we forget the weight of what's happening in these moments, the awe of them. And there are moments in the Christmas season in our lives when we realize that what we're going through is special, you know? Those, those moments when... Your kid opens a present and you see on their eyes, like as they, as they open really wide and say, oh my goodness, you got me this thing. And then they spend the next six months playing with the box. You know, those moments of goodness where you remember why you spent the money and did the things and ran to the stores and clicked Amazon Prime now, you know? There are these moments where the awe kind of hits us upside the head, where we see the weight of what's going on. But here's the problem is because of our society, because of our culture, because of the world we live in, sometimes we have to look for those because they don't happen naturally anymore. I was looking at an Advent devotional. There's a lot of them out there. 
this one specific Advent devotional this year, it gave you four scriptures, one a week. And it said, you're going to read these four scriptures every single day. You'll change from week to week. So for seven days in a row, you're going to read the scripture for 30 minutes. That's all you're going to do. The same one, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way to Sunday. Because they recognize their need to slow down and see. Because here's the problem. If we fly through Christmas and if the chaos of Christmas takes over, we miss the awe-inspiring moments of it. And all throughout the scripture, there are these moments when God breaks into the story of his people where they didn't expect it and they see it and they realize it and they're amazed at a God that would step in like this. And that's what we're looking at over the next four weeks. We're looking at specific stories where people saw God move and they couldn't help but back up and be in awe of how God stepped into their reality. And if you go too quickly, you miss those. So we're going to talk about the moments of awe around the Advent, the stories that we know and know well. And here's one thing I know about awe, this feeling of overwhelmingness that's good, that leads us to step back and kind of all the periphery stuff to dissolve away. I think awe always brings something, you know? It, 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 it elicits a response from us dependent upon what that awe was. For example, if you go to the Grand Canyon, and you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, unless you're a robot, you're going to feel some sense of awe, right? And that awe that you're going to feel is your smallness comparatively to the bigness of, what, of the backdrop. If you've ever been, you can see picture after picture after picture. But I remember when I went, I thought I was in middle school, maybe early high school, and I thought this is going to be dumb. I've seen the posters. What more do I need, you know? And you stand in front of it, and I was in awe of what I stood in front of, and I couldn't help but think, Wow. This world is bigger than me. I was a little prideful. I was like five foot two at that point in my life, you know? There are different moments of awe. I remember one awe moment in my life when I stood in front of the very first time. It was at night. I was in D.C. I love D.C. And I stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial overlooking the reflection pool and the Washington Monument. And I remember thinking to myself, this is an awe moment. And in that moment, it wasn't smallness, but it was pride of patriotism that welled up inside of me. I remember the moment my kid was born. That's an awe moment. And what wells up inside of you is this fierce love mixed with protectionism that you've never felt before. Different moments of awe elicit different responses from the people that are awed. And so what I want to do is go through the scriptures today and in the next couple of weeks. I want to look at the moments of awe that we find. And I want to ask the question, what does it bring? What does it bring you? What does it bring me? What does it tell us to do? Uh, before we do that this morning, we're going to do what we do every Sunday at Crossroads. We're going to spend some time getting ready and praying for the message. And, and we do this because at CBC, we have two goals on Sunday morning. We want to know God, and we know God by opening the scripture. But a full understanding and knowledge of God doesn't end with just jeopardy knowledge of Jesus. It ends with actually allowing that knowledge to influence our Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and turns knowledge into experience. And so our prayer this morning is not just that we know God, but that we experience his influence in our lives and in our world. And so we're going to spend some time praying and getting our hearts right, because that means that every time we open the scripture, the Holy Spirit's doing something. So you're just not out there listening, you're asking questions and the Spirit's speaking to you and the Word of God is alive and active and doing something in your soul that you might look more like Jesus today, that you might in some way be be led into a deeper relationship with the God who made you. This morning we believe that we just don't know, but we experience the influence of God in this place. So we're going to take some time and I'm going to ask that you get your heart right. And just pray that the Spirit might do something in your soul this morning. I'm going to ask if you're comfortable that you take a couple seconds and just pray for me. So let's pray. 
God, I'm thankful to be in this place. I'm thankful for the Advent season. I'm thankful to retell the same stories that we've told before because it forces us to slow down. It, it forces us to stop. It forces us to remember the awe moments in the Advent season. As we open your scriptures, I pray this morning um, that we get a deeper understanding of why Jesus came and what that meant for him and what that means for us. So I'd ask if you're comfortable, take a couple seconds and just to yourself, say a silent prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in your spirit today. And I ask that you just pray for me, that I might do a good job accurately depicting the character of God that we see on the canvas of the pages of Scripture this morning, that we might teach the truth of who God is and that might do something in our lives and in our families and in our communities this morning. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Now we're in it together. Philippians chapter two is where we're going to begin today. I'm going to give you kind of an outline of where we'll be. We'll be in Philippians two verses six through eight for the majority of our morning. And then at the end, we're going to pivot to John one. So when we get to John one, you can start smiling because we're almost done everybody. All right. You guys remember last week when it was an epic seven minute sermon? It's this week. It's going to be so good. I'm excited. Philippians 2, and before we get into it, what Philippians 2 is doing is really outlining the state of Jesus and and kind of the humility of Jesus. And what it talks about is his decision to leave heaven and come here. And before we get into our text, we need to ask a question. I think the question that needs to be asked is, is how does God approach us? How does God approach us? Because the way that we see God interact with humanity tells us about the kind of God that he is. Because there are different faiths and different religions. And how you believe that the God of your faith or religion interacts with humanity tells you a lot about who that God is and what he values. Whether it be that he found you in the woods and gave you a secret message, or whether he's more of a mad God looking down on smiting, the way that you think of how God interacts with you tells you about the character of that God. N.T. writes one of my favorite reads, and he was for seven years uh, chaplain at Worcester College in Oxford. And he said each year he used to see the first undergraduates individually for a few minutes, and I love what he said about it. He said he'd welcome them to the college and make a first acquaintance. He said, most were happy to meet me, but many commented, often with slight embarrassment, you won't be seeing much of me, you see, I don't believe in God. He developed a response every time a student at this non-Christian college that he was a chaplain at told him that. They'd say, I don't believe in God. And he'd say, oh, that's interesting. Which God is it that you don't believe in? You know? And they were kind of at that point a little confused. And then they kind of started to describe the God that they didn't believe in. And he'd say they would stumble out a few phrases about the God that they did not believe in. A being who lived up in the sky looking down disapprovingly at the world occasionally intervening to do miracles, sending bad people to hell while allowing good people to share in his heaven. N.T. Wright said, again, I had a stock response for this very common statement of spy in the sky theology. He said, and I quote, well, I'm not surprised you don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God either, you know? 
And he said at that point, the people looked at him and they were just thoroughly confused at this chaplain. And so I, I think I love what he's doing because he's doing what we all need to start by doing is saying the way that God approaches us tells us about the character of God that we worship or that we ascribe to. And in Philippians 2, it begins like this in verse 6. This is the God that we worship around this Advent season. It's talking about Jesus who, through, who, though Jesus existed in the form of God, did not regard equality as God to be something to be grasped, or as equality of God with God as something to be grasped. So you see the statement of Jesus, and, and, and we did this a lot in the Colossian series we just got out of. We talked about the nature of Jesus. But let's begin where our text begins, and it tells us that Jesus and God, if you need to be reminded again, are the same. Since they're the same stuff, literally that word form there means an outward appearance consistent with what is true inside. It's a form that perfectly expresses inner reality. So when he says that he existed in the form of God, it's not a derivative of God. It's not like this is God 1A. It's not like this is God part 2. It's not like he exhibits these qualities of God that the other parts of the Trinity don't share. He exhibits the perfect form all in of God. So when people see Jesus, what they see is the fullness of God. That's what it says in Colossians 1.9. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in the Son. I think sometimes... If we're not careful, we build these misconstructs of theology in our head that separate the Son or God and, 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 and Jesus, God and the Son, the Father and um, Jesus Christ. And so one thing we have to know that if Jesus is God, if it's unequivocal in the scriptures, if he's fully God, then being fully God, he existed before Jesus existed. So I'm going to say it like this. Jesus, how you think of Jesus existed before Jesus existed. And let me unpack that a little bit, right? So when we think of Jesus, we think of baby, manger, man, 33 years, walking and talking. When the scriptures talk about Jesus, that's what they mean too. But when we talk about the second person of the Trinity, most, most of the time, especially in the Old Testament and some in the New, he's referred to as the Son, the eternal Son. And, and that's important. It says it in... Uh, John 1, 1 through 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was God in the beginning. In Colossians 1, we just got out of it, it said, all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. He himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. It creates this case that, that Jesus existed before the birth of Jesus. The eternal Son has always existed because God has always been a Father. And let me tell you why that matters. Because I think if we're not careful when we look at this text or this Advent season, I think if we're not careful, we have this misinterpretation of theology where we think that God started the whole thing and Jesus picked up when God got a little tired. It's like a road trip theology. You know, you drive the first leg and then I'm going to go in the back and sleep and hand it off to the next person in the Trinity and now it's Holy Spirit time, let's go Pentecostals, you know? I feel like sometimes if we're not careful, the way we talk about the Trinity is scribes in some ways, even silently how we think about it. So when we talk about Jesus, we have to know that Jesus is a person that was born, but the Son always existed before God. The Son and the Father and the Spirit have always worked in tandem in the middle of creation. God didn't tap Jesus into the game. He was always present. He was always working. He was always creating and sustaining and holding together. So what Philippians is doing, what Paul is doing, is painting this picture of not just God part two, but fully God. It says, he existed in the form of God and did not, this is my favorite phrase, he did not regard 
Equality with God as something to be grasped. And why that's my favorite phrase is because I think from the beginning of creation in the Adamic story in the Garden of Eden, from the beginning of creation, our narrative as people has been trying to grab something we didn't deserve, which is deity. I think in the first story in the Garden, you see Satan tempt Adam and say, do you want to be like God? You should want to be like God. And he said, yes. And I think all from there, all brokenness from there follows in place when we break God's good order and decide that we know more, that we are more, that we deserve more, and we reach up to deity. So what Paul does, Paul says, Jesus doesn't have to reach up to deity, and that's one of the differences between us. He already had it. He already had it. One commentator said, I love this quote, his true nature is characterized not by selfish grabbing, but by an open-handed giving. So he's painting this picture of the glory of Jesus. And that matters because Jesus is going to give it up. (laughs) And if you don't understand the depth of what he gave up, you don't understand the awe moment of giving it up. So he was God. He existed before Jesus existed because he's always existed because he is deity. And then thirdly, he existed if he was God in heaven. And I don't know how you would describe heaven. It's really interesting, the study of heaven in our culture, because you might think, and I would probably agree, that our culture is less and less inclined to believe in the things of Christianity over time, over the last 50 years, just say. But one stat that's really interesting that hasn't really moved, is since the 1960s, about 8 in 10 Americans have held on to a belief in the afterlife, heaven in some capacity, regardless of how pagan the culture gets. One Gallup poll in uh, 2013, it was a Pew poll, excuse me, said that 27% of agnostics and 13% of atheists said they believe in some kind of afterlife, all right? You gotta understand, these guys don't believe in anything outside of metaphysical, and they say, but, but heaven, maybe I really want to, you know? We, deep down, hold on to this idea that that there's something after this thing. And then what we believe about that is is, is really, by and large, that it's better than this thing. So in a poll that was done, they asked, what was heaven like? 91% said it was peaceful. 90% said you'll be happy. And this is all people, not just Jesus people. 88% says um, that that love between people will exist. 81% said crippled people will be made whole. 80% said people will live forever. 74% said there will be laughter. There had better be, you know? So this is picture that's painted when it talks about God, Jesus being equal with God because he is God living in heaven. Here's one thing we have to know is that the place that Jesus came from, no matter what you believe about Jesus or not, we can all get down with the fact that we think heaven's better than here. We think heaven's better than here. And so what we're talking about Whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you believe in the God of the Bible or not, is if this person, Jesus, came from heaven to here, it was not upward mobility, it was not the Jeffersons, you know? He moved down into something that wasn't as good. Thomas More said, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Imagine moving from something perfect into something that's not. And all you've known is heaven. It's a pastor that I followed in Francis Chan, very popular man. He started a church in San Diego, um, and he, it just grew. He's a great, great, great teacher. He's written some books. 
it grew, it grew, it grew. It became a mega church. Um, and he left it for a little while and started something else in San Francisco. And it grew and grew and grew. And, and he just announced about a month ago that he's leaving the country with his wife and his kids. And they're going to go be missionaries in China and not the rich parts. You know? And so I like Francis Chan. And, and one of the reasons why is because it's really difficult and really awe-inspiring to see somebody leave something better for something not as good. And, and he might have left a mega church to go to a non-mega church, but he still lived in California and he still did pretty well and he still lived in the country. And I don't know what you believe about California. It doesn't matter. If you're born in this country, you're hitting the lottery in terms of like all of humanity been born ever. And he's saying, I'm going to give that up because there's a better good. It's awe-inspiring. And he's leaving California. Imagine leaving heaven, you know? So it says that Jesus... Jesus existed in the form of God and didn't have to grasp on the deity because he already held it in his hands. And then the next phrase, man, look at the next phrase with me. But he emptied himself. There's some discussion around what this word means. But here's one thing we know. It's saying that Jesus gave up something good to be here. So I want to spend some time talking about that word emptied because there's some false theology around it. I'm going to throw some words out there that you might want to use to impress your friends later. That is just fine. Um, There is a strain of theology called the kenosis theology. And really what that means is it's a false theology that came around about the late 1800s by a German guy. And what he said was that Jesus actually gave up his divinity for a little while to walk on earth. He gave up the thing that made him God. And so what I want to do in the next few minutes is go through three or four different theories of what this word emptying means and then kind of land on one for you, with you. Um, I want to process kind of with you, not for you a little bit. And so the first theory that some people hold is that Jesus literally gave up all of his deity to come here. I don't know if you guys have seen, this is going to date me. I think it's actually before me, but, but I used to love the Christopher Reeves Superman movies. You know what I'm talking about? Like those old school ones that were gritty and shot in the seventies. And then in the second one, he touches this orb and he becomes human. You know what I'm talking about? And he's at a bar somewhere and he gets in a fight and he gets punched and he actually bleeds and Superman had never bled before. And that is a big moment, right? That theology is filtered down into how we see Jesus. Jesus left his Superman powers up in heaven and came down here to do a little human stuff for a little while, you know? We have problems with that. We have problems with that because in the scriptures, as Jesus walks and talks, he doesn't say that. Last week in the Love Pack Sunday where we packed at 300 some odd boxes for kids so we could feed them over the Christmas break and there was this really, I've heard rumors about it for months, it seems like this epic seven minute sermon, everybody. Last week... In our time together, I talked about this story in, in John, where Jesus heals a man that had been crippled for 38 years. And the religious leaders of the day, he healed on a Sunday, which was the Sabbath, Saturday back then. So he healed on the Sabbath. And these religious leaders found him and said, how dare you heal on the Sabbath? And he said, my father's working and so am I. And literally what he said there was God works every day because people are born and people die and that's the work of the Lord. And so in the Jewish faith, you accepted that God works every day. He said, my father's working and I am too. He's ascribing deity to himself there. He's saying, I am God. And you know, he said that because that's 
a killing offense in the Jewish world. And it said after that, they tried harder to kill Jesus. Jesus says in John 10, 30, me and the father are one. He doesn't say we were one and we will be again. He says we are one. Even that verb in um, he emptied himself and, and in the first part of it in verse six, when it says that he existed in the form of, even that verb is in the present tense and in the Greek, it literally means that it's ongoing. He never gave it up. So so we can't believe, as we can't believe as we come to this text, that Jesus for a little while gave up deity so that he could die on the cross. He didn't. He was always God. So then another thought pattern, another way to interpret this is some will say that, well, he he gave up the big ones like the omnis, you know? (laughs) He didn't give up all deity, but he gave up some, like enough to make his humanity real. He gave up the omnis, so like omnipresent and omnipowerful and omni-knowledge, if you want to call it that. He, He gave up those things while he was here. That's what it means when it says he emptied himself. He forfeited those rights as God. But then again, I go back to the scriptures and I see stories over and over of Jesus controlling things that only God can control. Again, last week, the second story we looked at was when Jesus is in this massive storm on a lake and his friends thought they were going to die and he gets up from a nap and he says, quiet, be still. And the water obeyed him. The water does not obey anybody but the creator of the water, by the way. And they said, all moment, who, who, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? There's a story of the woman at the well when he's talking to her and and she says, yeah, I'm not married. And he says, I know, I know you. You're not married. You've had five husbands. And she's like, oh, you know, this is awkward. It's this idea that Jesus never gave up the omnis because he seems to operate in the omnis when he walked. He was more powerful than the wind and the waves and he knew about people. And so then you have some other guys that said (laughs) in the first century, Well, Jesus never gave up his deity, but he just kind of played humanity for a little while. He was never fully human. So when he emptied himself, he really didn't empty himself at all. He just never really took on humanity. And and, and we see in all through the places of the scriptures, Luke 2.52 is a good example. It says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. So you really do see a God that walks and talks and gets tired and he thirsts and he feels pain and he feels sadness. You see a God that grows up with the full range of human emotions and feelings and limitations and restrictions. So when Paul says Jesus emptied himself, we have to figure out what that means. And here's one thing we know. In the Christian faith, we believe in something called the hypostatic union. Again, words to impress your friends. But when we talk about the hypostatic union, what we mean is that all the time Jesus was fully God and fully man, and those two things never left each other. He was fully God and fully man all the time, and he didn't give up any of his divine attributes while walking as a man on earth. Walverd said, Christ surrendered no attribute of deity, but he did voluntarily restrict their independent use in keeping with his purpose of living among men in their limitations. So the question is, what did he give up? Look at the next phrasing. He took on the form of a slave. So he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? He took on the form of a slave. And that that word slave has really negative connotations in our context, and it should. It it didn't have as many negative connotations there. When he he took on the form of a slave, he, he gave up his positional authority next to God. When he took on the form of a slave, what it meant is what it means for us when the New Testament calls us slaves. It says that you're slaves of a good thing, so it's a good thing. 
The Old Testament calls Israel slaves to God and calls some of their best characters, Moses and David, slaves to the Almighty. And so when it says slave in the, is, in the, in the first century world, when it's referring to an Israelite concept, usually it's an honor and a privilege if you're a slave to God. And so it's saying that Jesus then took on, took on the form of a slave. He became what we are, which is a servant of God the Father. It says that he became, he took on the form of a slave. He looked like other men. So he gave up his position. He emptied himself of his glory. He looked like other men. You know how frustrating that must have been? For people to look at Jesus and not see Jesus. I came from a, a small private school where I could do all the things because there really wasn't a whole lot of market competition. And, um, you know, I played basketball as a 5'9 white dude. It was just not. <laughs> um, and I went to a college that wasn't big but was bigger than mine. And I remember pe- thinking, like, to people, like, guys, I'm, I'm pretty talented, you know? It's that moment when you come from a small town, you go to the big city, when you, you ask the question, you guys don't really see my glory, but I need to show it to you. Now, that falls woefully short um, of what Jesus did, but it's kind of the same frustration. Jesus left glory and came down here, and people just saw a man. So when he said things like, me and the Father are one, and people mocked him, imagine that feeling. There's a couple times in the scriptures where he actually showed people, his disciples, his glory, and they were blown away. So what did he empty himself of? His glory. People didn't see it when he walked around, but he still had it because he was still fully God. And finally it says that he emptied himself by sharing in the human nature. Jesus left his position, his glory, and he left his privilege. He shared in human nature. And I don't know if you guys realize this, but human nature is frustrating sometimes because I'm 35 years old and I can't do what I used to do, you know? I feel it's that, it's that emotion that, that I think my body thinks it can do the things I could do when I was 18, but I hurt for days, you know? So Jesus shared in human nature, which meant he was bound with the restrictions of humanity. He got tired. He got sad. He couldn't do the things that he could do as God all the way. The best example I've heard of this, of explaining kind of how God was fully God and fully man, um, revolves around the idea of like moving to another country and speaking another language. So there, there's a quote. I, when I was, I forget how old, 20-something. I'm so old, I forget how old now, right? I was 20-something, and um, I moved to Guatemala for a little while. And you got to understand that I, I, I like lib art stuff. I like to write, and I like to speak. And there's a Thomas Jefferson quote that I love. He says, the most valuable of all talents is that of never using two words when one will do. I am the opposite of that quote, right? I'm like, if you can use 10 and not two, you're not even trying, everybody, right? So, so I believe in lengthy dialogue. I believe in fleshing things out. I like to have long conversations. I don't like to limit vocabulary. When I moved to Guatemala, and I did not speak much Spanish. I knew some bad words from high school, and that's about it, you know? And I got off the plane, and I remember thinking, I have to learn some Spanish. And at the very beginning, I lived in this small village, um, a few hundred people, and I helped teach English at this private school. And I'd walk home every night after playing soccer or something like that, because in Guatemala, I was a giant. I really wanted to live there forever. Um, <laughs> and as you'd walk by people, everybody knew who I was, because I was the white guy that lived in the village. And so when you'd walk home, you'd look at people and just say, you know, good night, as you'd walk home. And in, in Spanish, buenas noches. I had a Texas accent that I've tried to dissolve for a while now, but I would, I would say buenas, which I can get, and they'd be like, naches, right? I got told about a week and a half in, after everybody just kept smiling, they were so lovely to me, <laughs> um, my host mom said, hey, basically, you got to pronounce that word right, because you're telling people they have nice butts, right? 
I was, I was very well liked in Guatemala, you know? And I, I taught English at a school there, and I taught first through sixth grade. I had a teacher that was with me, and I would get up there, and my, my shtick was like, I'd say the days of the week, and I would say the colors, and I would say a couple small different things, but I, I couldn't communicate like I wanted to. And I grew, and I learned a little bit, and I got better and better and better, but still, even when I left after I lived there, I spoke like a two-and-a-half-year-old, you know? And it was really hard with sometimes these kids that were younger, or sometimes these kids that were older wanted me to speak to them, and I just couldn't do it, and they looked at me like I was dumb, and I said, I swear I'm not dumb. I am an orator in English. I will use all the words, you know? But because I lived in this place and spoke a different language, they never saw the other nature that I had. Jesus, when he walked as a human, walked in humanity, and they never saw the other side of his divinity. This is the hypostatic union that his whole other nature, but he's being bound by this one nature that he chose to enter into. Walvard goes on to say, in a word, he restricted the benefits of his attributes as they pertain to his walk on earth and voluntarily chose not to use his powers to lift himself above ordinary human limitations. And here's why he did it, because he loved us. (laughs) He did it because he came to save us. He did it because he thought the end justified the means. And it did. He did it because there was greater purpose in the pain than there was in staying the same, staying in heaven. He gave that up. And the next phrase in our text said he did it because of this. He humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death. And here is really where the awe moment comes. What kind of humility does what he did? What kind of humility comes from heaven to earth? What kind of humility walks around knowing your deity, not allowing anybody to see it? What kind of humility can put up with that for three days, no less 33 years? What kind of humility does that? Because I've told the story so many times about Jesus coming to earth, baby Jesus coming to earth. And it's a good one. It's a great one. We're going to keep telling it and read it on Christmas Eve. But you have to understand what motivated him to get there is this overwhelming, awe-inspiring humility that they didn't value in a first century world. They didn't think that was a good thing to possess or have. Because when people have power, they typically hold on to power. But Jesus came and said things like, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And if you don't know what meekness is, it is quite simply the disciplined display of power for the purposes of others. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to discipline my use of my divinity because it's better for you right now. Humility. This awe-inspiring humility that's often not seen, but when we camp down on it, we can't help but look at it. And so Jesus came. He left heaven, and he came. Let's go to John. Smile, we're almost done. John 1, verse 14. Very popular verse. (coughs) So he talks about how he came what it took for him to come here. And as we dive deeper into what it took for him to come here, it it opens up the depth of all that is the beauty of Jesus and the love of Jesus coming here in the first place. And he said, this is what it looks like. He says in verse 14, now the word that's Jesus became flesh. We just went through that and took up residence among us. I don't know what translation you have, but it's some version of he dwelt among us. He took up residence among us. And that word there really paints a picture of what kind of residence he took up. So that word there paints a picture of, of the Hebraic concept of, of tabernacled. 
If you don't know what the tabernacle is in the Jewish world, the tabernacle is where the presence of God existed in the Old Testament. So let's back this thing up to Genesis 1. And God, God's plan was that his presence might go over and be in and, and all throughout creation through us, the image bearers of God. That he might intricately rule and reign over his creation, all things being perfectly good. We messed that up. We got so many things wrong because we grabbed towards deity when we didn't deserve it. And after that, God said, I can't be in the presence of evil anymore. And we got kicked out of the garden and we left. And from then on out, really, it's just been God trying to redeem and recapture his creation. And he picked a people in Israel. He picked Israel. and He said, I'm going to bring you that has nothing to bring me. I'm going to bring you out of obscurity into power. And along the way, I'm going to reside with you. And he goes to him after he delivers him from Egypt. And he says in Exodus 25, let them Israel make for me a sanctuary so that I might live among them. That's the beginning of what's called the tabernacle. It's this moving structure where the presence of God existed so that the presence of God could be among the people of God. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see the tabernacle move. And then finally, Israel says, all these other countries have an actual temple that doesn't move. Let's build you one of those. And so they did. And the presence of God dwelt there in the center of his people, in the center of their lives, so that the presence of God might be among the people of God. So, so when Jesus comes, when he says that I've tabernacled with you, man, you can live with people and not really live with people. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you can live with people and not really exist with people. You can live with people and not reside with people. You can live with people and not take up residence. It says literally this word that the presence of God was made among man again. He tabernacled with us. And any good Jew would look at that and say, this is like what happened in the Old Testament. The presence of God is here. It's here. And I love that. That the humility of God brought the presence of God. And this is one of the first awe-inspiring moments that I see in the scriptures, that I see at the Christmas season, is when I look at humility, that's the awe. Here's what it brings. It brings presence. Every time. Jesus' humility brought his presence to a people that didn't deserve it. And that's beautiful. And here's what I love about the Advent season is as we tell the stories that you know, as we tell the stories that we've told before, we begin to see not just a story of Jesus, but a model of Jesus' life that we're trying to model too. So it's not just about Jesus' humility bringing his presence, but he calls all of us in this story to be humble so that we might bring the very presence of God that lives in us as the spirit of God into spaces and places. One of my pet peeves as a pastor um, is when people kind of skip over, they fly right by Christmas and they get to Easter. I was at a Christmas concert. It was an amazing Christmas concert um, a couple weeks ago, last week actually. And it was at a church, and uh, this guy got up there, and he said, hey, last week we all gathered together, and we realized that we hang ornaments on these trees. And it's, you know, it reminded us of Jesus hanging on the cross. And I thought, don't skip, don't skip Christmas. Stop it, you know? Like, it's good and beautiful and true, but if we fly right by the Christmas season, and we go straight to Easter, we miss the beauty of the moment. We miss the power of presence. We miss Jesus coming in his humility, bringing him here. We miss the call on you and me to be present in the lives of others because it's powerful. Because sometimes I need to be reminded of that. This week was a tough week around here. There was um, a good friend of all of ours who lost a kid 
And in those moments, man, when I go and sit with families, I don't know what to say because they don't teach you that in seminary. And even if they did, it wouldn't matter. And you sit with families and all I can do is sit there and say, I'm going to be here in the middle of your pain because Jesus stepped into mine. I'm no better than that. I don't deserve more than that. My humility will bring my presence to your world as best as I can. When I play with my kid and she's playing with boxes, I need to remember that I am not better than my kid. I have no more important things to do with my world in my life. And emails can wait for five minutes because she goes to bed at 7.30 and wakes up at like 5.30 in the morning. That can be present in her life because Jesus was present in mine. And I remember that it begins with humility. And here's the deal. When people see that kind of humility and when they see that kind of presence, And when they realize that the presence of God dwells with the people of God as we humble ourselves and place ourselves in the lives of one another, people can't help but be in awe. It's a beautiful call of the Christmas season. And if we don't slow down and stop down, we miss it. (laughs) We miss that Jesus calls us to be pleasant in people's lives like he was in ours. We miss the awe of humility that brings presence. So as we continue in worship, and sing a little more, it's my prayer that we remember what Jesus gave up. And as we remember what he gave up, it deepens our understanding of his humility. It deepens our understanding of how much he loved. It deepens our understanding of who he is so that we might live and do the same. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for the humility of Jesus. I need it. I'm thankful that Jesus would give up all those things to be near us, to be with me, to be in this broken world. I'm thankful because I need it. May we be a people of humility. May we be a people that is present in the lives of others because we know the Christmas story and we understand what God did for us and we understand that when we're present in the lives of others, when we're humbly present, it inspires awe as people see Jesus. So I pray people might see Jesus as we show up in the lives of the people that we're around, as we focus in on the Christmas story, and as we find awe in Advent all over again. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.